Welcome to Jews on Film. My name is Harry Adensasser. I've got a degree in film studies, and I am uh, currently a Jew. And joining me, as always, is my co-host, Daniel Zana. Hi, Harry. My name is Daniel Zana. I'm a video editor, documentary filmmaker. Today, we are discussing the film Pretty Woman with our guest, who is the writer, host, and creator of You Must Remember This, about the secret and or forgotten history of Hollywood's first century. Her new season, Erotic 90s, is out now, and you can check out the second episode, which focuses on today's film, wherever you get podcasts. Karina Longworth, welcome to Jews on Film. It's truly an honor to have you here today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So we start out, you know, our podcast kind of just asking a few sort of questions just to kind of get people clued in as to why we are discussing the film today. And so I wanted to ask you sort of what made you choose to uh, discuss this film on today's podcast for Jews on Film? I really like Pretty Woman. I think it's a really good movie and I think it's really interesting. And I think there's a, a lot to say about it that doesn't often get said. And I also think talking about it as like a Jewish movie is really counterintuitive. And I'm not even sure it is one, but I mean, it was directed by a Jewish person. So there's that. <laughs> and the villain, I guess, is is coded as like an evil Jew. So Oh yeah. We we are gonna jump in on a lot of that. And I uh I was I'd never seen this movie. I was very excited wow. to have an excuse to watch it and, and did really love it. But I did watch it with my wife who looked at me and said, So what are you gonna talk about on Jason Film? <laughs> and I jumped to Jason Alexander a little bit in his codedness. I, I didn't know yeah. that uh the director was Jewish at the time, so that's really interesting. But we, we we have some stuff we'll come up with that I'm very much looking forward to debating, you know, how Jewish we can actually claim this is by the end of the episode. <laughs> It is kind of an interesting film. I had never seen it either. I grew up in LA and so sort of seeing the landmarks, uh, I, I was in the Valley, but so, you know, but seeing Rodeo Drive and things like that, part of Sir Beverly Hills and Hollywood and stuff like that. It's nice to see old sites, especially from, from the 90s. So the film, you know, just for context, the film came out in 1990, is directed by Gary Marshall, uh, written by J.F. Lawton and stars, obviously stars Julia Roberts and Jason Alexander as Philip Stuckey, but as Richard Gere as Edward Lewis. Yeah, I mean, the film started out as initially as a script called $3,000 by J.F. Lawton, and it was quite a bit darker, I understand, you know, before it was sort of sanitized quite a bit and 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 retooled. It went through a few different incarnations, and Julia, Julia Roberts actually agreed to be in the movie when it was called 3000 and when the story of it was, you know, I guess grittier. She was living sort of more of a desperate life as a streetwalker. And at the end of the film, instead of there being sort of this romantic promise that these two people are going to be together and she will have access to his wealth, he just kind of dumps her back where he found her. Eesh. And so <laughs> I think it was not as fun. And um, I do know that Julia Roberts, you know, did a bunch of she was very sort of a serious young actress and she did a bunch of research talking to actual Hollywood Boulevard streetwalkers to prepare for the original version. And so when they kind of did these rewrites and and Disney agreed to make it um, and Gary Marshall became the director and was kind of trying to make it more of a screwball romantic comedy, she was still right. trying to bring in the research she had she had gathered from talking to real streetwalkers. At the time, you know, in 1990, Richard Gere, you know, 10 years earlier had played a, a uh, a, a gigolo in American Gigolo, which you covered on erotic eighties and, uh, Julia Roberts, I think at this time she had done, 
I think Mystic Pizza, and then there was one other film, but she was still relatively unknown, yeah? She had been in Mystic Pizza and a movie called Satisfaction, and she had done Steel Magnolias, Ah, which I think came out um, while either while she was shooting Pretty Woman or or Pretty... She was cast in in Pretty Woman before Steel Magnolias had come out, but she was um, nominated for an Oscar for Steel Magnolias. Oh, nice. And there's pretty big age disparity. I think she was in her 20s and he's roughly 40-ish, right? Yeah, I think she was 22 when she made the film and he was 40. Gotcha. I'm really interested in the way we're talking about how this film was sanitized from what it originally was, because I think, you know, reading up a little bit about the legacy of this film and the way that it's viewed, you know, nowadays, I would say in 2023 and the way people look back on it, I think a lot of its morality, its messaging has become a little bit more complicated than it probably was at the time. I know the way that the movie ultimately comes down about her her work, you know, as a sex worker. And it's there's this big narrative thread that I, I think we're going to talk about in a Jewish context a little bit, and, and you'll see how, because it might not be so obvious, but about how he's trying to, quote unquote, save her, right, from this life as a sex worker and kind of, you know, bring her out of that. And that the, the way that they talk so critically about, I think, some of the practice that she did in the context of the movie is what's, I think been mostly reevaluated by a lot of contemporary audiences and trying to make sense of where this movie aligns. And I think what we're describing in this earlier version, which I don't know how much exists from it, if there was a, uh, if there was a script or anything or what we know about it, but it sounds like, oh, so I would be fascinated in learning more about that and what it depicted, because it sounds like it could have provided maybe a more nuanced or just more rounded approach to sex work instead of just kind of hinting at it and then casting it aside as like, this is what we need to protect her from. This is what the movie is saying, you know, Richard Gere needs to pull her out of. So I would be fascinated to see, you know, where that that movie was originally going to be, not just in its Mm -hmm. content, but also in its messaging versus what we got today. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it would have been more nuanced. I think it might have been even more demonizing of the profession. Right, right. Because you can imagine a version that, like you're saying, demonizes it. And ultimately, you know, I think, Daniel, we spoke about how there even was like, I think Julia Roberts, her character was supposed to be the one who's the drug addict or or has a drug problem. And they actually kind of push her as far away from that or not as possible. But there's that scene in the bathroom we'll talk about later where Edward kind of calls her out and says, you know, get out of here. If you're taking drugs, I don't want that in my hotel. And she's like, no, no, I've been sober for years. Like, that is not a part of my life. And it's you know, that that's one version that that's clearly like the Disney, like we need a we can't even imply that she's on drugs. We have to make it clear that even if she was, she no longer is. But you can imagine another version where that might have featured heavily. And I think, like you said correctly, probably been demonized even more possibly. Yeah. I mean, like, I think what that scene is doing is, you know, he has an assumption of what a hooker is. And for him, a hooker does drugs. But why would he have that idea that like, you know, if a prostitute is holding something behind her back, it's drugs. And and why why would it be more realistic to show uh, like a, to depict a streetwalker as somebody who does drugs from what i read i think they they decided to give laura santiacamo's uh character kit it seems like they kind of gave her that sort of the 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 trait of of being the addict you know earlier in in the movie we kind of see that she has stolen some money and and purchased drugs and and things like that so it seems like vivian is is sort of the example that sort of breaks the mold uh, sort of, of of others in the in the film and she's kind of different than the rest just that i i'm interested you know in our discussion now to kind of again weigh in and you know together the three of us on just the, this film's depiction of you know her as as the streetwalker and kind of the way that it moralizes it because i think that scene that you're talking about where it's like why did we have to assume that she's on drugs you know you can be a streetwalker and not be on drugs right that that can exist 
simultaneously. But I'm wondering if the movie casts her as a someone, if it's trying to lend nuance to her or if it's to, you know, the rest of the streetwalkers in the film. Like they all could potentially have, you know, encountered this situation and been just fine and just haven't been treated the same way and were judged, you know, too much for their profession and not for. Or is it something about Vivian in particular? And I think that will also lend a lot of or shed a lot of light on, you know, where the movie's coming out on, on this conversation, because, you know, it's possible it is actually a lot more nuanced than maybe some people are giving it credit for. Well, I mean, I guess I just feel like the movie mostly uses prostitution as a metaphor, um, and I don't think it actually cares about any real details. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't know that we need to go to like romantic comedies, big, glossy romantic comedies for a realistic depiction of anything. Right. Um, you know, it's I think the movie is very, very consciously shaped as a fairy tale and it doesn't hide that. Right. Absolutely. Through the ending, which I'm excited to get into once we get up to that. <laughs> But I think what it is realistic about is certain things between men and women, and it uses prostitution as sort of this metaphor to get to certain things about transactional relationships between men and women. I feel like a lot of like power dynamics for sure play into it a lot, and certainly the way that like men will come to the aid of women's, you know, like they need men to kind of help them succeed, to learn to about things and how to kind of level up in, in society and things like that. What's that called? Am I getting it wrong? The Pygmalion myth? Is that right? Where like the artist sort of like sculpts his work of art? Yeah. And in, in playing into that, though, I mean, I think that one of the things about the like tellings of that sort of story, like My Fair Lady, is that um, it really only works if the changes to the woman are cosmetic primarily, mm -hmm. while the man has like actual inner transformation. And I think that that's one of the things that pretty woman does really well yeah um you know she she doesn't have to change who she is as a person the movie is confident from the beginning that she's a good person right she has to change her clothes and mm -hmm. and the movie it understands that that is a superficial change he has to change who he is as a person right right interesting i like that yeah i mean sort of what makes her unique and is her like way that she views the world and and the way that she's able to take a lot of i, I just love that like that that dinner scene, which is like such a stuffy scene and she's like flicking escargot and everyone's just like loving it and having a good time. And, <laughs> you know, grandson David is not having it at all. But I think her, you know, her charm kind of comes through there and really um, kind of wins the meeting. Unfortunately, Edward kind of blows it. But I had another question for you. I wanted to ask, you know, growing up, what was Jewish film like for you? What, what did that mean to you? Nothing. Nothing. Okay. <laughs> I, gotcha. I just, I didn't think about movies as being Jewish or not, not Jewish, I think. Gotcha. Did you ever watch films like, uh, you know, the classic, like Ten Commandments or Fiddler on the Roof or any Woody Allen kind of films or? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've seen, all, seen lots of Woody Allen movies and I was aware of Fiddler on the Roof as a kid. Um, it was like, there's a, a certain number of musicals that were always on the Disney channel. And that was one of them. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, for me, like I grew up, you know, my mother's side of the family is Jewish. And so that was a, a part of my life. But like I, I would, with my grandfather and my mother's father, like I'd watch was like the Wizard of Oz, you know, we wouldn't necessarily like be watching movies about Jews. Gotcha. Yeah. Harry, you want to hit us with that IMDb summary? Yeah, sure. So uh, just a quick one this week. A man in a legal but hurtful business needs an escort for some social events and hires a beautiful prostitute he meets, only to fall in love. 
that's such a weird description. Do they have like AI write those descriptions? <laughs> it's it's always a mixed bag on the IMDb summaries because <laughs> yeah. it's all it's user entered. And I, mm-hmm. I laughed at that when I first read this because, you know, legal but hurtful business, which, <laughs> yeah, sure. Like that's that's, that's what we're focusing what was, on. Uh, that, that's what was affected. Yeah. The person who was writing that. I mean, I guess like corporate raiders, that was kind of like a thing and still is a thing. But, you know. We, we talk, well, we talk about his growth in the movie, right? He's the one who really changes and that sure. change, you know, spurred on by her, but, you yeah, know, ultimately yeah. is realized in that big business scene we'll talk about at the end when he, you know, makes the decision this one time not to break up a company and sell it for pieces like he's always done. And, right. and that's kind of his big victory by the end of it. So yeah. so, yeah, it's a big part of his trajectory for sure. I'm curious if given the right amount of time, if this film will be remade with like 2020 whatever lenses, you know, if like maybe uh, Richard Gere's character is like a tech bro or whatever the equivalent of like a corporate reader is for today's audience. I mean, like a consultant. Oh, yeah. Is that is that what it is these days? I don't know. I'm not in that world. I don't. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll kind of dive into the plot and we'll talk about some of our favorite scenes. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Karina Longworth to discuss the film Pretty Woman. Harry, do you want to get us started? Yeah, sure. So I was thinking we could just start talking about the beginning of the movie a little bit, you know, loosely just to set the scene a little bit. You know, we, we meet uh, Richard Gere's character. We meet Edward. He's at this Hollywood party and we're introduced to, we learn about his business, right? His, uh, his amoral business that we heard about in the IMDb summary. He buys these companies, breaks them up and sells them for pieces. We learn about his lawyer. Uh, Phil Stuckey that we've mentioned before, who's going to be significant to our discussion, but played by Jason Alexander. But, you know, really wanted to get us started at the, you know, the pivotal scene when we've started to meet Vivian. You know, we we see about, we, they kind of set the stage. She needs some money. She, they need to pay rent. Her roommate, like you mentioned, Daniel, has spent some of the money uh, purchasing drugs. So she, you know, they're soliciting clients and, and that, that's when we find, you know, Edward, as he's leaving the party, she kind of flags down his car and, you know, he all he really needed at the time were just directions back to, you know, he's from New York. So he's not he's not very familiar with the Hollywood Hills. So all he needed were some directions. But eventually we have this big meet cute moment and they, uh, you know, she Vivian gets in the car and, you know, eventually is invited up to his hotel room, you know, for her for sex worker services, so to speak. But uh, I wanted to jump in and just talk a little bit about that them kind of meeting together and and our takes on those opening scenes. But, you know, before I jumped into some of the things I, I had planned, uh, I wanted to hear if anyone else had thoughts just about that whole opening moment of the film. I think right away what, what was interesting to me, like when we first meet uh, Vivian, is that like their introduction, she doesn't immediately shift into like sex worker mode in terms of offering up her services. She offers to like give him directions. And I think that sort of introduction kind of sets up that she's different than what we would perceive, you know, and I think that really endears us to her as a character, you know, Jason Alexander's character as Phil, I think his, his perpetual state is just worry and and sort of constant buzzing around with the cell phone and, and worrying about Edward and the, the deal that's looming throughout the, the film. And yeah, but I think it's, it's kind of, it it sets up their world's, pretty nicely and gives enough context to kind of get people on board with the story. 
they set up this interesting balance I found of, you know, separating work from romance. And this is a movie where, you know, we have this character who eventually we we know it's, it's a romantic comedy. We know it's going to kind of build towards that. But, you know, there's a couple of ground rules. I think before she approaches the car, you know, what she has to keep in mind just about, you know, this is business. You're just meeting them and, and we'll get the direct quotes in here so that we have the whole thing. And and obviously we get that infamous, you know, no kissing rule because that's something that's very intimate. And, you know, I mentioned this to you before we started recording, Daniel, but I, I think it's really interesting that this movie, you know, one of the tropes of rom-coms, you know, probably before this movie, but especially since has been, you know, at least one of the characters, if not both of them are, you know, very focused on their work lives and don't have time for romance. And that is something that we definitely get with um, Edward's character. I mean, he's, the movie literally opens with him having a phone call with his, I think it's his girlfriend at the time and breaking up with her over the fact that he doesn't spend any time with her and is, you know, too kind of hyper-focused on his work. But even with her, we get this weird situation that I, I wanted to kind of start discussing where technically the romance is, in, you would imagine, part of her work, right? Her, her line of work and what she's supposed to do. Like there is, her love life could be so intertwined. And the movie goes to, you know, big pains to say, separate it like this is a job like when we meet these two characters they're on the same footing as like this is work only and it's it's really interesting the way that I think both of their identities are related and not related from their romantic lives and I think a big part of his growth in his romantic life later on Edward plays into his work life so so that relationship between I think work life and romantic life is something this movie is uh, is investigating in a way that not all rom-coms do. I just think that he is um, announced as a character who treats everything in his life as a transaction. That breakup, and then he runs into this other ex-girlfriend at that party, and he said something oh, to right. her, like, you know, inspired by the phone conversation he had breaking yeah. up with the other woman, where he's like, did you talk to my secretary more than you talked to me? Uh, and she right. says, like, she was the bridesmaid at my wedding. Like, mm. like yes, mm -hmm. I had to, like, negotiate my relationship with you through your work. And so it makes perfect sense. Like it's like, it's not even like a fairy tale thing. It's a real world thing that a guy like that, who's only comfortable having transactional relationships would feel more comfortable having a transparently transactional relationship with a sex worker. I really disagree with the take that like um, a sex worker's uh, love life would overlap with their work. I think that it makes more sense that the default would be the opposite. Like a separation between yes. your actual, yeah, your right. personal like love necessary. life and your, yeah, for yeah. sure. That, that boundaries would have to be set up. Right. Yeah, and and they explicitly are. You know, I was mentioning this, but that's literally something you know the movie gives time to, which is to say, here's how you have to separate this from your life and that kind of mm -hmm. distance in there. And and I wonder, you know, what kind of causes eventually those those walls to crumble in the context of this movie. I mean you know, her, it stops becoming about her work once he hires her as a kind of, because eventually he doesn't just hire her as, you know, this one night sex worker, but he says, you're going to stay with me this entire week because I need someone to show up with me to meetings to kind of be charming. And, and once the, I guess the relationship, the transactional relationship, like we're calling it, you know, evolves into that, I think the prospect of romance no longer is, you know, the antithesis of what she's doing. I, I think it just exists somewhat independently because even so he's still just saying, you know, I want you to be charming and almost like, uh, you know, a figurehead. Like, I just want you to show up in, in my uh, in my meetings and just be there. Right. But I don't think it's as kind of polar and, and opposed once that relationship changes. You know, there is something called the girlfriend experience, which is the idea that you will basically play act a relationship. 
Um, but what you're being paid for is to leave when the person paying wants you to leave. And so I think that's what we're seeing depicted. And yeah, I mean, they end up, you know, having a bond and liking each other. But it's not him saying, I'm going to pay you $3,000 for a week. That is the thing that creates that bond. It's them being two human beings in a room together. It's almost completely like in spite of the, mm-hmm. the relationships that they right, created. Yeah. And I think that this arrangement sort of comes about after Philip sort of insists that Edward get some sort of like company for him for these meetings so that he seems more like fleshed out as a human being and not this like businessman who's just by himself. And I think Philip offers to set him up with someone from his circle, but then, you know, he says, I, I'm good. I, I got a girlfriend or I got a, I got someone. So, so not to worry about it. So. What Edward wants is to just be able to conduct the deal. Right. And a, like if a woman is necessary to that, he doesn't want to have a woman around who he has to have a real relationship with. Right. Yeah. And so he thinks that Vivian is the right choice for that. It creates like favorable conditions for this. Yeah. So, you know, the throughout the film, there's this deal that's going on where he's helping uh, conduct a deal where he's, I think he's buying some land in Long Beach and he's trying to, you know, usually what he does is he buys a company and then sell it for pieces for more than what he paid for it initially. So I think that is sort of the frame, this sort of loose business uh, venture that is, you know, being conducted throughout the film. And Vivian's presence helps uh, helps that hopefully succeed. There's one thing I want to add, which is a big part of um, the episode that I've done on this this film, which is that and this is something that I don't think I noticed, you know, the first like 12 times I watched this movie, but like yeah. was really apparent to me watching it kind of in middle age, which is that they say in dialogue that Richard Gere's dad died two weeks ago. And he has this really complicated relationship with his dad who right. who left him and his mom and and he has kind of worked his whole life to have the professional success so that he could say like this pain that my dad caused doesn't matter. And over the course, you know, so, I mean, I'm somebody who I've lost both of my parents. Like Uh, I understand grief Yeah. and being able to see this movie as a dead dad movie (laughs) made it Uh feel a lot richer to me and and made me sort of understand the, like a reading of the movie through the Edward character as somebody who we're meeting at like this very raw time you know, it's it's sort of the perfect time for him to change his life. Right. Interesting. And and the, you know, Vivian absolutely p- plays a role in him, like kind of finding sort of a new thing to live for and like a new thing to orient his emotional life around. But the business deal is like, is also really important because he comes to understand that he's having transactions, not with like businesses, but with human beings. And he comes to have like a father figure in Ralph Bellamy. Um, yeah. So like, I think that that's one of the sort of emotional nuances of this film that doesn't get talked about a lot. I love that, Reed. Yeah, I think I was saying to Harry before that, like, and we could talk about it throughout the episode, but like, you know, as far as like sexual explicitness to this film, I found like the most intimate scenes to be like these pillow talk conversations or the bathtub scenes where they're like, you know, snuggling with each other and like talking about their backgrounds and really like bearing their souls to each other, which to me is like, you know, that's very, you know, sex is a physical act, but like when you are bearing your soul to someone and like talking 
about your family or yourself in a, in a very deep way and being vulnerable, I think is like much more close. And, you know, what did he say? He says, I was very angry with him. It cost me $10,000 in therapy to say that sentence. I was very angry with him. I do it very well, don't I? I'll say it again. I was very angry with him. Hello, my name is Mr. Lewis. I'm very angry with my father. I would have been angry at the $10,000. You know, I think that scene was like, you know, that's a very tender scene. It's a very private and intimate scene. And I, I, I think that to me, because throughout the other parts of the film, whenever there's like implied sex or sex acts or things like that, it's usually like a fade out and a fade up. And we kind of understand what go is going on. Yeah. I mean, I, and then also counterpoint, like, I don't think anybody like would have expected Gary Marshall to direct the piano scene. Right. Um, like that's definitely like the right. sexiest thing in his oeuvre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. I read that Richard Gere actually played the piano, which was pretty He's neat. a piano player. Yeah. That's Talented awesome. Talented guy. Yeah. Unbelievable. <laughs> but Edward, where does he have time to to like get piano lessons when he's like closing so many deals? It's <sighs> it's impressive, you know? I assume it's something he learned as a kid. Oh, right, right. So are we thinking that like Edward came from money or that he didn't and in spite of that he's like a hustler and like a workaholic kind of thing. I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's in the movie him saying that like his dad basically like was this big corporate guy oh, right, who left right. um, him and his mom with nothing. Right. So. Oh, he he does say that his first car was a limo. <laughs> so let me bounce forward a little bit in the plot. So I think at this point we have I think the deal has been conducted and Vivian's going to be staying with Edward for the week for the sum of three thousand dollars. It's a nice little negotiation scene where she says, I would do it for two. And he said, I would have given you four or something like that. So it's, uh, it's always fun. Yeah, they also, yeah, the humor is like, what was that gag? I'm, I'm butchering these lines here, but you know, <laughs> the whole thing where like, like he calls her twice and he says like, Hello. Never ever pick up the phone. Why are you calling me? Did you buy clothes today? Hello? I told you not to pick up the phone. Then stop calling me. <laughs> Pretty good writing here. Like they, they definitely are able to like play with tone and mix the, mix it all up nicely. I mean, it's just like a self-conscious um, homage to the screwball comedies of the thirties and forties. I think mm, that's a good call out for sure. Coming up, like after that, after, after the the deal has been signed and we're ready to go, uh, Edward, you know, instructs, he tells Vivian that she needs to go out and get something nice to, you know, to change her wardrobe because she's still kind of in her sex worker uniform and he wants to make sure that she looks nice for their, their dinner. So she goes out to Rodeo Drive and pops into a store and is almost immediately turned away by the shopkeepers because they, you know, she has her money, but they're, they're not wanting uh, to help her out just because of the way she's dressed. So then uh, Barnard, uh, the hotel manager, played by Hector Elizondo, uh, calls in a favor and helps her out so that she can uh, get some nice clothing and also shows her the ropes about like dining. You know, you have the shrimp fork and the salad fork and the this fork and the that fork and all that kind of stuff. And so then uh, Edward, you know, brings her along to the business, business dinner with Mr. James Burns and his grandson, David, and they chat a little bit and they char she charms the group with her kind of like unconventional ways and, you know, tries to not take herself too seriously. And she succeeds in charming them. But like I said before, Edward's proposition kind of pisses them off. So it's not really a success in that regard. Edward, you know, hears about uh, Vivian having a hard time shopping. So that the next day 
they uh, he takes her out on a shopping spree, and she gets a lot more clothing, and she has enough clothes uh, for this upcoming polo match that hit that Edward's company has sponsored. At this polo game, Edward speaks to Philip, and he eventually reveals that Vivian's you know tr- he reveals her true identity as a sex worker, and Philip takes this as an invitation to sort of be cruel to Vivian and make sort of a few unwelcome sexual advances towards her um, outside. Upon returning from the game, Vivian is really upset with Edward for telling Philip that she's a sex worker and she threatens to leave. Edward is able to talk her into staying and they continue uh, and to continuing to accompany him for the week. I, I think the shopping scene is a uh, it's it's one of the most memorable scenes of the movie. Sure. And it's pretty significant for, you know, that that main thesis just about, you know, like you were saying, I think, Karina, that who she always was, that she was always this person. But you know, her dress just dictated it and her, you know, where she was coming from just dictated the way that everyone else around her treated it. And we get that, you know, really amazing comparison where first she walks into the store and she's, you know, very rudely dismissed. They, you know, without questioning, and it's not even about the money at that point. I mean, that it's it's interesting actually, because to them, it's almost like you would think that, you know, working in this, in this uh, fashion store on Rodeo Drive, it would be, you know, purely transactional in the sense that, you know, if you have the money to pay for any of these dresses, please, but there is this, you know, kind of like guiding ethic that they see the way she's dressed, they see who she is, that they they refuse to even take her money. They say like... How much is this, Marie? It's very expensive. It's very expensive. Look, I got money to spend in here. I don't think we have anything for you. You're obviously in the wrong place. Please leave. You know, there's the comparison, of course, to when she comes back, obviously, having, you know, shopped herself and looking a different way. And all of a sudden she's treated differently. But, you know, even the comparison to uh, to Barnard, you said, who uh, is working at the hotel and, you know, immediately recognizes, you know, everything that's going on here, knows the situation and is just so willing to, you know, coach her through, you know, very unsolicited. Like, you know, you're going to this dinner. Let me like give you, you know, more than you need. It's not just about, you know, let, let me basically... It's almost like show you how to present yourself in this world, but even that ultimately is not, you know, end goal because even that is, it's just posturing, right? It's just looking a certain way. And and even, you know, when she is herself and when she is charming, I think that ultimately proves more effective in terms of the relationship. You know, we, we learned that the uh, the younger, the son uh, of the business, uh, of the grandson who actually meets there, like he wants to follow up with her later. Like that to me felt like it was you know, far more effective than any of the kind of coding and dress that she could put on herself. So it's interesting the way that the movie navigates this and all those uh, couple of scenes. You know, this is Jews on film. So at some point, I kind of wanted to Mm -hmm. talk about this idea of like, you know, conservative dress versus like provocative dress or whatever. Like there's this concept in Jewish, you know, like, like sinut or, or, or like modesty. And so like this idea that like, you know, you have to wear a certain, a skirt, a certain length or, or sleeves up to a certain point I, that to me, like looking at it through that lens, certainly played heavily, you know, in, in my viewing in terms of this film, because it's an often talked about concept in, in, with regards to like what women wear in more, more religiously observant Jewish circles. Like modesty is like a very big focus, whether it's like covering your hair or making sure that you're clothing is certain lengths. And and so seeing, you know, the way that she dressed her, her change from sort of uh, more revealing clothing to like more uh, conservative clothing, I think even Edward asked her to buy something elegant and conservative, like he gives her that sort of instruction. And so I certainly viewed it through that lens. 
Where, and where do you think the movie comes out on that, right? Like, where do you think, is, is this a movie that just kind of follows that approach of, you know, the more kind of modestly and maybe elegantly dressed, that's something that, you know, she's rewarded for ultimately? Or do you think, because I, I think per, you know, the way I was talking about those past scenes, like, I think the movie embraces that it has its fun with the, you know, the the shopping scene and it has sure. those iconic, you know, she's holding all the bags and she walks in. But I think to a certain extent, the movie is able to look past that and say that, you know, she is so charming and moving, like, right. because of who she is. And ne that never had anything to do mm -hmm. with the dress. And and I'm not sure of the movie because there are moments towards the end where, again, you know, she meets her friend again and she comments on the way that she's dressed. And, you know, I don't know where that plays into her uh, ultimate growth, if that was, you know, something positive, negative, or just helped her kind of understand her place in the world and maybe got her in the door. But once she was there, she was able to be herself. But I don't know. How do you think the movie falls out on that question? I think the movie understands that the women in, in the store are wrong. <laughs> I just think that it the movie is saying, like, this is a shallow system. This is a system that only values superficiality and that she gets rewarded for participating in it. But that doesn't mean that the system is right. Yeah. yeah, for sure. You know, I've been thinking throughout our discussion about that that original ending we spoke about and both in this context and what that would have said if, you know, she kind of goes back to her life and how, you know, she's changed what she learns from that if she rejects that. But also, you know, in the context of the transactions we're talking about and what if this was just this kind of week-long transaction and how moved are they from this? You know, it, it raises the question, and obviously this is jumping ahead to the end, but, you know, where are these characters five days later, two weeks later, six months later? Like, what what kind of life are they settling into? You know, you know, uh, Vivian has only known, you know, since she kind of decided to become, or since she, she moved into this life, she hasn't, we don't know what what she'll be doing afterwards because she's never, you know, we've never seen her in that context. And even Edward, like, is he going to take this new approach he's found to all of his work after this? Was this just like in this yeah. one project, he really got to know the, the you know, the, this older man and he wanted to honor his legacy. And I'm not sure, you know, we, we've clearly, we, we've discovered a broken system that kind of feels <laughs> like what's happened over the course of this week. Yeah. And the question is, where do we go from there? Is the answer fairy tale love? Or maybe this is the fairy tale where we, it doesn't matter where we go from here. You know, it's supposed to wrap up there. Well, I think that if this movie was made, you know, later, there definitely would have been a sequel or like a TV show version of it. And I mean, I, I think I say in my episode about it that like we really have no idea if he like is going to be able to have an actual relationship. Right. Um, because we've right. only we've only seen evidence that he can have transactions. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I like the jury's out on that one. But I also I mean, just thinking about you guys talking about the Hector Elizondo scenes, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that something he's not doing that out of the goodness of his heart. He's doing it so that she will fit in in the establishment of the right. hotel. Mm -hmm. And he's also kind of grooming her to be a higher class hooker. Ah. There's benefit for both of them if she is able to be of service to the type of clientele that stays at his hotel. Right. So like I could imagine a pretty woman TV show where there's no Richard Gere character. There's just like the Julia Roberts character and the Hector Elizondo character. And there's this hotel and she's having different relationships with different men. Love it. Like John of the week going on like different like business <laughs> meetings. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's time to, to kind of get on the stretch train if that's okay. Cause I had a big stretch here. So there's this concept in some Jewish circles of like a, a shadchan, which is like a, a matchmaker. I mean, there's matchmakers in any culture, obviously. But like, I think he plays this like, to me, you know, one read could be that he's like matchmaking 
up up until the end where he was like, oh, by the way. You know, Daryl also drove Miss Vivian home yesterday. So he's <laughs> kind of like egging it along a little bit. You know, the fact that he's like calling in favors for her and like showing her how to eat. I, I feel like he's he really wants things to happen between them. And so he's kind of like making sure that that happens. I'm sure what you were saying, Karina, like that he wants, he does say at the end, I hope to see you back at the hotel. So there's definitely <laughs> the reality that he's like, yeah, maybe you'll, you know, bring more business back to the hotel or something like that. But I think if we're on the stretch train, I thought that was something that like stuck out to me. Cause I think the whole, the whole relationship, again, very stretchy and definitely subtext and not literal at all. But I think it, it builds up to this sort of like the culmination, I think, is that sort of sex scene kind of at the end of, you know, sort of closer to the end of the movie where they like, you know, they consummate their love with each other on screen and it, and they kiss and things like that. But up until then, we're still kind of like building to it. And I think that's probably narrative structure. But I, I had this sort of read of just like getting ready, not like a wedding, but like almost like a wedding in a sense that it's like, like it's very chaste, right? So we're not seeing a lot of stuff at the beginning and it's a lot of implied this and that. They're eating strawberries, they're watching TV together and it's kind of like they're going on dates and then eventually, you know, things get a little bit more serious towards the end, but I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm too far on the stretch train, Harry. What do you think? Reel me back in. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think, you know, even by then and they've, they've consummated and I think there's something powerful sure. about this is a movie where we haven't seen it all, but there's been you know, an implied amount of sex until this point, but the real consummation is just kind of them kissing because that obviously, you know, takes this from, like we said, from one aspect of a transaction to, you know, something more akin to romantic love. But, you know, for me, the kisses is one really meaningful scene. I think in the context of this conversation, especially about the transactional nature of their relationship, it's really, it's when, you know, and ultimately they have this falling out because, you know, she becomes, and just, you know, to sort of catch up, she's, you know, embarrassed of the way that he's treating her because she kind of, she realizes that he's still treating her like, you know, like a sex worker and, you know, the way that he's talking to his uh, lawyer about her and that, that kind of gets back to her. And then, you know, there's all these things that happen, but the the, the biggest scene for me is when she, you know, is leaving and he, you know, pulls out of his wallet, he takes out the, you know, negotiated, I think $3,000, puts it on the table. And what's so striking to him is seeing that she doesn't take it, you know, and and then it kind of clicks in his head, mm, like, okay, you know, right, like her not taking the money. And you can imagine this is a person who's wealthy and, you know, I don't need to say the word transaction a 20th time, but, you know, just seeing the way that she doesn't take it and that this wasn't actually about this. I mean, that's the the hardwiring of his brain. You know, that's where it's changing. I think even by the time, you know, they're kissing, for him at least, I'm sure he's kissed, you know, many women. And I'm sure that he's, you know, I mean, whatever, with all his past wives, girlfriends, like that was always a part of the relationship. I don't think where that might've been probably the most meaningful moment for her, because like we said, we outlined her rules in the beginning that, you know, when you're dealing with a customer, there's no kissing. For him, it was, you know, when you're dealing with someone there has to be payment at the end or there has to be some sort of mutual benefit. And each of them kind of independently have their own moments of realization, which, you know, definitely reflects the different paths that I think both of them are on. But it's interesting what that looks like for both of them. It almost feels like they each had different goals from everything. That's interesting. I don't know. I For me, the like there's a really important scene and sort of like whether or not they're actually having a romance is the mm -hmm. breakfast scene where he's like, I've arranged for you to have an apartment, have a car, have a wide variety of stores guaranteed to suck up to you anytime you want to go shopping. Everything's done. What else? You can leave some money by the bed when you pass through town? Vivian, it really wouldn't be like that. 
How would it be? Well, for one thing, it would get you off the streets. And she's like, well, right. that's just geography. Like, I would still be your whore, but you'd just pr- sort of pretend I was your girlfriend and we'd be, just be continuing this transaction. And that's not what I want. You know, he, it's basically like they come to an impasse. He says he can't offer her anything right. else at that point, you know, and the, I, I don't know. It's just it's very interesting to me that um, that they even include that scene because it's like. She's basically this is like after, you know, I'm sure we're going to talk about the Jason Alexander scene. She's basically challenged him to say, like, are you going to treat me like a human being who is equal to you? And can we have a relationship that is not just about your needs, but is about both of our needs? And he says, I can't. I can't do that. And, you know, the the movie could end there. But because it's a fairy tale, it does not. And if, if I remember correctly, I think that almost not immediately, but kind of comes right before that scene where she walks out without the money. And I think even in real time, I, I don't think he thinks that like he think I think when he offers her, you know, the apartment, he's very excited about it. I think he he believes that he's giving her what she wants. And I think he's, mm-hmm. you know, taking what he considers this relationship to be to what he feels like is the natural next level. That's where he's always taken it. And I think it's her response coupled with, you know, her reaction, not even taking the money when all is kind of lost is just this, uh, you know, oh, maybe I'm I'm dealing with something else here. Maybe this isn't what, what I thought. Like one thing that stuck out to me about that, like particular offer, Karina, was that like, I, I don't know if he explicitly spelled it out, but he was saying something about like getting her off the streets. Like that was right. like to rescue her. Like I'm going to rescue you and I'm going to put right. you up in this LA condo and then you're no longer going to be what you are and you're going to be like, I'm going to keep you in my castle kind of thing. And And, and that's when you. she says that's just geography. Right. Yeah. I mean, that idea is something that, you know, I've heard in you know modern parlance is like this this concept of saving, you know, and it's I've, I've heard it in like, you know, specifically actually in like a song context with like, uh, you know, rappers will talk about like, you know, saving people, which is like taking people from, you know, lesser means and just kind of, you know, joining with them and like, you know, help helping pull them out of their social class into, you know, this wealthier one. And uh, I think like, again, that that plays into to, you know, where where he's coming from this, that he he still thinks he's kind of extending to her and doing the favor, almost like he would be okay, you know, without her, but this is an incredible gesture towards her. And I think for this to be a relationship that, you know, is actually, you know, mutual and successful, there has to be this coming from the same place and meeting in the middle and and that kind of power imbalance that he thinks of when he says, let me pull you here. Like, that's how he's always felt like I can do good for the women in my life. I can take care of them. And, you know, this is goes beyond the actual text of the film because we don't see how he interacts with everyone outside of her. But it, it's almost like he believes that he needs to, you know, be using his means, his own gains to help, you know, the, these women in his life. But she's kind of correcting and like, no, I, that's not what we need from each other. You know, you need to be there, you know, on my terms, what I want. And ultimately what she asks for is that kind of fairy tale sequence that we get at the very end, you know, which is that big romantic gesture, which at that point in the film, I would say is inconceivable to him. You know, ultimately towards the end of the film, we do see that like, in my mind, I feel like she holds the greater power in that she has the ability to like enact actual change. Like Karina, you said earlier, her change is mostly cosmetic, new dress, you know, new necklace, whatever, that kind of thing. But like she is able to get through this guy who's like a notoriously tough guy businessman. And and she's able to enact change both in his personal life and in his business life, something that Philip is not able to do. 
broadly, we, we kind of get to, uh, you know, the, there's sort of these big moments towards the end of the movie. I mean, the opera scene is part of this continued, you know, as they're getting closer, they go to the opera together. And, you know, it's, it's actually an interesting line that I'd want to unpack where uh, Ed says to Vivian. People's reactions to opera the first time they see it is very dramatic. Either love it or they hate it. If they love it, they will always love it. If they don't, they may learn to appreciate it, but it will never become part of their soul. And it's interesting that, you know, his whole perception of people just innately being drawn to it or not. But um, so they have that big opera scene. But, you know, the real momentous scene that I think we should definitely talk about is is with Philip, where, you know, Philip, we, we mentioned this in an earlier scene, had found out that Edward had been dealing with, you know, a, a sex worker. And he gets, you know, very excited by this idea of Philip and later shows up at her. Um, oh, well, he actually goes to the hotel room because the the big deal had fallen through, right? Ed, Edward had kind of grown a heart and decided he wasn't going to dismantle this company, sign the contract without Philip in the room. And Philip is very upset because he's lost a lot of money over this. So he goes to the hotel room to confront Edward, but only Vivian is there. And that's when we have that very uh, upsetting scene where he, I mean, you know, quite literally sexually assaults Vivian until, you know, Edward kind of shows up in the room and breaks it up. But, you know, he he storms out very angrily. You know, you, you cost my chance, you ruined my money, and he blames her for you know, evoking the change in, in Edward. But uh, Daniel, what did you want to, uh, where'd you want to start us off on that scene? Because that that's pretty significant, I think. Let me jump back to the opera because I thought, you know, it's it's worth calling out. It's a, kind of like an iconic scene where she comes out. She's wearing this like very fancy red dress with this ruby red necklace worth, I think they could say $250,000. And she, she's moved by this opera. You know, she's seeing uh, the opera is called La Traviata, which is, I think it's, it's sort of closely mirrors the story we're we're watching, right? It's it's about a, a sex worker uh, meeting a, a rich person, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, you know she's very moved by it, and so they're, you know, doing that. And I think you know it's it's almost like a spiritual experience. I wrote down in my notes, it's kind of like uh, I, again back on the stretch train, but I feel like she's super moved by this, where you would expect maybe that. That, that he would be the cultured person who's like totally moved by it. And I think, you know, the house lights go back up. She's got tears in her eyes and he's totally like less affected by it, I think. Um, but it's a very binary, like you said, uh, Harry, I think it's a binary reaction, right? It's either you love it or you hate it. It's like, well, there is nuance here. I thought that was kind of an interesting scene. It's a pretty facile way of doing it. But I mean, I think that it, you know, it's just trying to... Um suggest that like if you had this idea that she was like a completely uneducated like lower class of person because of what she does for a living like here's an example of how she could fit into his world she plays the part like dress wise and i don't think she's playing a part you know i don't think she's pretending to like the opera oh no 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 and i don't know i just feel like human beings can surprise you um Mm -hmm. Like I, I actually had like a very similar situation recently where I told somebody that I was going to go to an opera and I, it was somebody who I, I guess I had perceived as not being that cultured Uh and that person said, oh, I went to see Tosca recently. It was great. And so, you know, I just think that, I think this sort of reflects like something that, that is very common of, of having assumptions um, about somebody based on what they do for a living or or their race or their religion or whatever it is. Sure. And people being able to surprise you. Right. Yeah. We contain multitudes, right? We could talk about the that sort of sort of penultimate scene with Philip, like you said, Harry. 
Vivian kind of inspires Edward to kind of think differently about life. And he ends up making a personal appeal. He does very much have this sort of like father son relationship with Mr. Burns and he puts his hand on his shoulder and you could see that Richard Gere is, or uh, Edward is very affected by this and they end up, you know, having an agreeable conclusion to this deal. But, you know, when Philip does come by and is mostly concerned about the deal going sideways, I, you know, as our coded Jewish character, I kind of wanted to talk about that and, and sort of see if, if that was the takeaway for most people. Well, I think it's like, you know, it's obviously it's bad like (laughs) to have like the one Jewish character in the movie be the, the most sort of greedy and violent. I mean, I I just want to clarify that the deal doesn't go away. It changes. Yeah. And that's what Philip is upset about because what they were going to do was sell this guy's company and make a ton of money immediately. And instead, Edward is going to go into business with the Ralph Bellamy character um, and they're going to work together to build ships and get government contracts. And so it's like it's still a deal. They're still going to make money. They're just going to make like it's going to take time to make the money. It's not going to be like one huge cash in um, immediately. And so that's like, that's what Philip is upset about is that, and I mean, also I think he feels like he's being replaced in Mm -hmm. Edward's Mm -hmm. life as well. The movie thinks that both things are equally important, both his greed and his sort of like feeling like he's kicked to the curb. Right. Yeah. And obviously after, you know, that, that sequence plays out, it's pretty clear he's fired, you know, from that point on and is kind (laughs) of out of her life. And, and I think, He's Phillips coming from a place like you're saying of he's been replaced already. Like the ethic has changed, the rules have changed. The, like this guy's willing to make relationships with other people. You can imagine until this point, it was really Philip felt like that was all to himself. And uh, and yeah, and I think that's the cause of a lot of his anxiety. But uh, but I do also I, I want to talk about you know the Jewishness of him because you know I had a funny conversation with someone when this movie was suggested. You know, and when I was talk, I was telling a friend we're recording an episode soon on uh, mm-hmm. on Pretty Woman. You know, they they kind of gave me a little bit of a puzzled look just on you know the, like we mentioned at the top, just the question of the Jewishness. But they said, oh, you know that guy from Seinfeld's in it, so I guess that's like Jewish, and it's right. it's interesting. Okay. And I think it's it's his presence on Seinfeld. It's who Jason Alexander is. It's you know the the New York, you know, Jew, like archetype that that we've spoken about a lot, you know, I I do think that there's some explicit coding, you know, that that doesn't take place in this movie. I think in the context of the movie, you know, at least explicitly, his role is more of the, you know, he's supposed to be the ruthless, you know, the, the ruthless business person, the guy that's, you know, really marks the marks the changes that Edward's gone through because then right. you see in opposition to who he could have been, you know, had he kind of pushed towards the, you know, further grotesque. But um, but it but it's not hard, I think, to pull, especially through the lens that we were watching this movie, just some of the, you know, the nastier tropes about this, you know, greedy lawyer character. And I think if it was this anxiety over if his anxiety was exclusively about being, you know, replaced and, and cast aside and, you know, the whole thing had imploded, I think it would be a little bit more sympathetic. But especially when it comes down to not just greed over a deal not going through, but greed over a deal just taking more time and maybe not being quite as profitable as it could have been. I think that, especially through this lens, starts to cast that moment as a little bit more of of an upsetting scene to watch, you know, from a Jewish lens, I would say. Yeah, and I mean, it's like, it's so venal the way that, like, if he feels like he's being replaced by Vivian, then he takes it out on Vivian and he takes it out in this violent sexual way and... Also, like compared to Richard Gere, Jason Alexander is not conventionally attractive and and, you know, it, he he's sort of short and not slim. And like, I think these are all sort of bad, bad, bad 
stereotypes of like, you know, sort of the Jewish troll. Right. Yeah, it sucks. It's not good. <laughs> not a good look for the Jews. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, we, we sometimes ask that. Is this good yeah. for the Jews, bad for the Jews? This one might not, as yeah. a moment, might not be great. No. But what's interesting yeah. is, you know, after watching, like we're saying, just to bring it back to the buzzword of the episode, but as, as we've seen the kind of transactional nature of uh, a lot of these relationships kind of veer off and, and we're getting to a place by this point where, you know, Edward has come to understand that relationships aren't necessarily, I mean, this is the most, I think, explicit, like, not only is he taking his own Jason Alexander, right, Phillips character, is he taking her, you know, his own sexual pleasure or dominant, you know, because it's not necessarily about that, but mm -hmm. this kind of, you know, dominant from her, but he's doing it to get back at someone else. Like it is like he is objectifying her in the sense that like, you know, in the most explicit sense we've seen anyone in this movie in terms of, you know, sexuality, because he is like, I am taking this to prove a point at someone else and maybe to command my own, you know, very selfish sense of, of power, you know, over you. But this is like, again, it, it stands in just this incredible contrast to, you know, where we've seen the rest of our characters go and it epitomizes probably the worst of, you know, how sex can be transactional and, you know, not even a transaction. I mean, fully, fully one-sided, really. Well, I mean, he says something awful to her, like... Maybe you're very good hooker, you know. I mean, maybe if I do you, then I wouldn't care about losing millions of dollars. The way he talks about it, it's like he expects her to pay him in free sex for the right. money that he's lost. I mean, I think he's the only person in the film who kind of judges her for her like her job in life as, as I mean, opposed... I think Edward absolutely judges her. I mean, that's what the drug floss thing is about. Right. Like that's true. there's that's true. so many ways in which he dehumanizes her through um through dialogue and just through his whole attitude of like no one can know you're a hooker. Right. So I think that he that's part of like why the story of the movie is like an enormous journey from him. Sure. Thinking sure. of her as le a less than a human being to being like I'm actually going to reorient my life around you. Yeah. I guess Edward does it with a little bit more tact and panache than Philip, who kind of <laughs> yeah. is just like, yeah, I'm going to sexually assault yeah. you or whatever. Like, yeah, it's it's a very gross look for the Jews. So before we go to break and go to yeah. the end of the movie, I sure. wanted to uh, mention the the biblical comp, the biblical illusion that I uh, I kind of was able to place in this movie and, and definitely wanted to hear some of your thoughts here because you know, immediately trying to find scope at the Jewishness, a lot of times Daniel and I will look towards, you know, what, you know, where, what, what biblical story, where can we see that this is, you know, mirrored, sourced. And, you know, the first one that came to mind for me was, uh, you know, it's in the in the first book of the Torah, the book of uh, of Genesis, Breshit, is we have the story of Yehuda and Tamar. I'll play out kind of like how this is comparative, but especially given, you know, our conversation, I think that really holds up. But very, very briefly, because the story is a lot more uh, complex than this, but you know, Tamar is, um, she's married to uh, Judah, to Yehuda's oldest uh, son. And what happens is uh, his son dies without them producing a, a child. So, you know, as was Jewish law or as is Jewish law, if they don't produce a child, then, you know, the, you know, she is supposed to get married then to the next oldest son in line and kind of, you know, continuing. So what happens is she gets married to the next one. And then again, he dies very young. So instead of letting her stay as part of the family, you know, Judah kind of views her in a very negative light. And what ends up happening is that she, she, you know, puts on costuming and, you know, we're talking about clothing and dresses up as a sex worker and basically has a relation with Yehuda kind of inconspicuously. He doesn't know who she is, is the point. And eventually she is, you know, she is pregnant. She's able to conceive from this. But later on, you know, Judah sees her, you know, out of costume and says, you know, what have you done? And, you know, wants to have her killed. 
but she kind of explains to him, actually, you know, you weren't letting me into your family. So I, you know, it was me. I'm the person you slept with. And she takes some proof to, to prove it to her. And he recognizes what happens. He sees her and he says, okay, I, I was wrong. You know, he admits guilt and welcomes her into the family. The thing that was exciting to me about it is just the way that their relationship changes, you know, Judah's character and the way that he's the one who has to undergo this kind of reorienting, reframing the way that he thinks about you know, just belonging, family, and relationships, because, again, we come from this place, and I'm going to try to use, you know, the, the comp words, but where he views, you know, her role in this family, very transactional, you're producing a child for me, you're going to, or for my, you know, a, producing a grandchild, and it's all about kind of what she can give, and when she can't give that, he casts her away. The relationship is supposed to be much more nuanced than that, and that he isn't supposed to think of her that way, and that kind of, you know, there's this big moment of recognition that he has, so... I saw a lot of comparisons there. I'm not okay. trying to claim that. Uh, yeah, I'm not trying to claim, claim that, you know, the movie when they were writing this movie, they were thinking, you know, how can we draw this into that sure, story? Sure. But I but I think there is an early kind of Jewish approach to, you know, the way that sex is used and the way that, you know, relationships are found with people, you know, in, in unconventional ways. It's good to have like some historical context, but I feel like it, it may be a little bit on the stretch chain. I'm curious, like, what sort of change did you sort of see Tamar, like taught Judah, after they got together, you're saying there was like a change that was noted somewhat? Like, was he taking off his shoes and walking in the grass? Was it like that kind of change? You know what I'm saying? Like, you know? That's exactly what I think is, is supposed to happen. I think right. it, it's okay. not just like, yes, there's a cynical read of that. I think that is, you know, well, she produced the child. So now she was valuable to him, which, mm -hmm. you know, that could be a version. It's not how I chose to, uh, to understand that story. It was sure. more of a, I was wrong to cast you out. I didn't value you for, you know, for you kind of thing. Yeah. More to the point of the biblical touchstones than, uh, you know, than to add anything meaningful. But uh, for sure. I thought it was interesting. Yeah. It's unfortunate that like a lot of the work is on the woman to enact positive change in a man, it seems. Or, you know, like the guy can't, the guys can't do like their own sort of self-discovery. And, and, and uh, I mean, Edward did get therapy, which is good. But like, ultimately, <laughs> I don't think she forced him to. I think she was fully prepared to walk away. I just think the right. movie is, you know, she was a very positive sure. force, you yeah. know, in, in his life. For sure. Yeah. I mean, she basically has to has to give up on him in order to spur him to um, totally. meet her halfway or or come to her rather than the type of relationship, you know, they'd they had had and then he proposed that they continue to have which is like him standing on one end and her moving all the way to him like he right. has to he has to come a little bit towards her sure this was our sort of discussion of the of the plot of the and a little bit of the we touched a little bit on the themes but um i feel like maybe we're we're due for another quick break and we'll come back and we'll rate the film on a scale of one to five jewish stars um, on, <laughs> in terms of like content uh, themes and then cast and crew we'll be right back Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are discussing Pretty Woman, and now we are up to the point in the show where we will debate its content, cast and crew themes, and give it a ranking on a scale of one to five Jewish stars, depending how Jewish it is. Uh, Daniel, why don't you get us started? Absolutely. Sure thing. Um, so I think maybe we'll just start with the cast and crew. Um, you know, in terms of our main cast, I think the only person uh, that we know of that's Jewish is, unfortunately, it's Jason Alexander as Philip Stuckey. And then the writer, J.F. Lawton, I don't believe is Jewish. And I did some research during the break. It turns out Gary Marshall is not actually Jewish, but is regularly cast as a Jew, which is interesting. He was baptized Presbyterian and raised Lutheran. 
Yeah, I, I think I can defend you there just a little bit. Mm -hmm. I, I found this one article, you know, first I looked it up also, Gary Marshall Jewish, and here's a, here's a quote I could pull from there, but it says, the director and actor uh, was so often mistaken for a Jew that it was mentioned in an, in an obituary. So mm -hmm. it kind of feels like okay. you've got some company there. Yeah, I think the article says, you know, if there was a competition for the most Jewish-seeming non-Jew, the late Gary Marshall would have topped the podium. Like, right. it feels like that was, uh, you know, part of his his brand, so to speak, and his identity, you know, even though that wasn't how he was born and raised. Yeah. Well, where do you guys come down on that? Do you feel like it's like blackface? We Yeah, <laughs> we, we flirted with talking about <laughs> Jewface a little bit in that yeah. question. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I think I've mentioned this in an earlier episode, but you know it depends where you're taking it, you know, and it, when it becomes negative caricature and negative stereotype, and that you're kind of accentuating your own, you know, your own face, your own affect to create, you know, a quote unquote Jewish character. You know, I start to see some issues there, but you know, it's acting, and if you want to, you know, honor and, and play kind of like a Jewishness or a Jewish sensibility, I think there's a lot of merit to that, and I I love that. You know, the Jewish sensibility has value to people kind of outside of just Jewish actors. So, I think I'm a little more okay with it in this context. But uh, how how do you feel about it? I think it's not such a clear cut issue. I think you know, certainly like as of late, you know, you see like the Leonard Bernstein biopic with Bradley Cooper, um, and he's got this sort of prosthetic nose on. Yeah, um, that's which rough. is which is like accurate to Leonard Bernstein, but then also the fact that it's like Bradley Cooper and not someone maybe Jewish. You know, the flip side of that is that like you know our our you know Mount Rushmore of you know non Jews playing Jews. We have like John mm -hmm. Turturro, um, we have Tony Shalhoub, often cast as a Jew, not a Jew, and they do great performances in those roles. Would I have felt better about someone? you know, in Philip Stuckey's role, if it wasn't Jason Alexander, like, let's say if it was John Turturro or Tony Shalhoub or one of those characters, like, I don't know that it would have, maybe I would have felt like, yeah, I don't know. This is or like somebody the, not coded as Jewish at all. Right. You know, like just John Goodman. You oh, know? sure. Yeah. Right. Just because, right. yeah, because in, in this case, it's almost like I wish they had moved further away from further, Jewish because uh -huh. this is this yeah. is a movie that doesn't name this character Jewish, but I, I think is playing on some of the right, audience stereotypes right, 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 right. about, you know, yeah. that look, that aesthetic. And, you know, the it's believable that he would go to such extremes over a little bit of money yeah. because of some of those stereotypes. Yeah, right. it's interesting because like in 2023 with like a focus on authentic casting in terms of like, you know, race or gender or gender expression or you know, sexual orientation or thing like that. It it is it is important for a lot of communities to have their selves represented on screen. It doesn't seem that it often carries over with with like Jewish portrayals. Uh, so right. you know, it is yeah. getting somewhat better, but I think that's still something that's a little bit of a, like a blind spot. And you know, often the portrayal of like Jewish life on screen is like something to be like not desired or someone fleeing that like. No, but I mean, I feel, you know, frustrated when I see like, you know, the Felicity Jones as Ruth Bader Ginsburg types castings. Sure. And I say that as somebody who's half Jewish and half British. So <laughs> yeah. technically, like I'm both represented there. But, um, right. you know, it, it does just make you feel like, um, especially when it's like, you know, I, I can't remember who the actress was, but there was like recently announced that uh, like another British actress was going to play Carol King. Mm -hmm. And it's like you just like if you cast somebody who doesn't have sort of like the Semitic looks in somebody who iconically did, then right. either you're asking for a prosthetic nose or you're say you're just saying like we couldn't possibly cast somebody who looked like Carol King because that person wouldn't be beautiful. 
Right. Yeah. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Well, Hollywood has a lot of work to do and I hope, uh, you know, <laughs> I hope it's a tough question, I think. And, and there's like layers to it. I think certainly for me, it's not like every time that there's a Jewish role that has to be played by a Jew. I just think that it does, it does help lend an air of authenticity to it in terms of, you know, especially the looks, but also the, the rituals depicted on screen and things like that. You know, we did a, f a few horror films that had like, we did The Vigil and we also did The Offering, which are like uh, horror films that take place in the Hasidic world. And they're, they're, they cast a lot of Jewish people in the role and, and certainly, you know, sort of leaning on that as, as a way to lend authenticity to the film and, and create this world, uh, I think certainly helped. So, but back to our ratings, given our, our conversation, you know, the Jude and Tamar of it all and my very stretchy sort of reads on the matchmakerness and the and the modesty talk and all that kind of stuff. You know, we have our content, our cast and crew, and our themes. So, talking about those things, factoring into those things, um, where do you feel like the film uh, lands on a scale of one to five Jewish stars? I mean, I guess like one. Okay. <laughs> really, probably pretty low. I probably shouldn't have suggested it. Sorry. No, no. This was a. I mean, no, yeah, this was, this was a super fun conversation and a, and, and a great film to explore. I think, you know, I often find that the films that are like so obviously Jewish maybe are maybe less exciting to talk about because there's less to like dig and, and uncover. And so I feel like this is, this is a good one to talk about because it forces us to dig in and find these biblical references and get on the stretch mm -hmm. train more than once. So. Harry, where are you falling on on this film? Trying to work out the way to bump up the numbers. I mean, it's funny because I like I I am using that story that I told where I, I spoke to someone and said, you know, we're talking about this Jewish, you know, Jews on film. And, you know, they mentioned the Jason Alexander of it all. And I don't know if anyone would have thought of that. You know, the question is, would someone have gotten that conclusion without framing it like, you know, for the Jews on film podcast, talking about the Jewishness and they would have pulled him out there. You know, because like we said, like in the movie, he's obviously not cast as a Jewish character, or at least it's not explicitly referenced. But, you know, his presence in the film, I, I hope it's not the most memorable part of the film. You know, I hope yeah. the way that people endearingly look back to this movie, they're not kind of putting it in consideration with him and his, his role there, because obviously from a Jewish perspective, that's a little bit challenging. You know, in terms of the, you know, the the, the themes of it, the uh, the content, you know, I, I'm going to stick with my uh, with my little stretch, even though uh, I'm not sure how well, uh, how well you guys received it. But I, I do think that, you know, the way that a lot of stories can be traced back, there, there's clearly some, um, you know, some questions there, but but I'm not sure, you know, not not so much explicitly, you know, a lot of good themes of, you know, transaction and the relationships that I'm sure if we dove deeper, spent another week on, we could find some, some Jewish comps to that, maybe some Jewish like laws or values that, uh, you know, that that deal with stuff like that. But um, but I was actually going to stick also close to, I think, a one on this one. Uh, how about you, Daniel? Where would you weigh in? I mean, I think I'll probably come up alongside you two, kind of maybe one or so, one and a half. I don't, you know, I think there's our, all of our stretches, which I don't usually um, award points, full points for that one. Um, I think the character maybe half a point and then the stretch is half a point. Not a hugely Jewish film, but I think, you know, I mean, we could always ask the question, do you think either Vivian or Edward are maybe Jewish or have a Jewish soul or anything like that? I mean, we're back on the stretch train, but like, are there any any thoughts about that? I mean, I just I don't think we see any any evidence of um, certainly any religious practice right. on the part of either of them. But um, in terms of like the more cultural stuff or the stereotypes yeah. and tropes, like when 
you know, I think that the Jason Alexander character fits with, you know, some of the negative stereotypes. But then you have to also just, I guess, question like, obviously, like those stereotypes read to like an uneducated audience as Jewish. Yeah. But like, are they actually Jewish? Right. You know, like, obviously, generally not. Right, right. I would have loved like a deleted scene of like Vivian lighting maybe Shabbat candles and then like uh, Edward, you know, maybe saying Kaddish for his recently departed father. It would have bumped yeah. it up. It would have bumped it up a few stars. But unfortunately, I think yeah. this is where I mean, did at, he you know? sit Shiva? I don't think so. Hmm, that's a good question. It's you said he was weeks. two he weeks been, out. He would have yeah. gotten up exactly very recently. Probably right. Right. he would have had a beard possibly for Shloshim if that was his, his practice. Yeah. So Good call. I would, good call. Uh, I, I would guess he's not Jewish. Or just not, you know, practicing observant, but I feel like in the sequel they'll cover that. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe the what was that? The the um was it the Netflix show where it's like take place in the hotel? Maybe Edward will make a cameo Mm -hmm. appearance once in a while. I think I'm I'm into that. Yeah. Karina, thank you so much for being here on Jews on Film to discuss Pretty Woman. Really appreciate you picking this film and giving us a chance to explore it again. It's like it's in it's thirty it's came out in nineteen ninety, so we're in so it's 33 uh, years, which is crazy. It seems crazy that mm-hmm. came out so long ago. But could you tell our listeners a little bit about, um, you must remember this, and uh, erotic 90s? Sure, yeah. I've been doing a podcast called You Must Remember This since 2014. It's about basically 20th century Hollywood and the secret and forgotten stories of the films and stars of 20th century Hollywood. And I do different seasons based on different themes. And I last year I did a season called Erotic 80s, which is about sex and Hollywood movies in the 80s. And now I'm doing the sequel, Erotic 90s, which is about sex and Hollywood film in the 90s. And so it premiered uh, March 28th, and there's going to be 21 episodes before the end of the year. So it's going to be pretty. There's a Pretty Woman episode. There's going to be episodes on Thelma and Louise, and Basic Instinct, and Showgirls, and lots of stuff. That sounds awesome. I can't wait. Uh, can't wait to listen. At, at this point, the, the 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 episode, the season has already started. So make sure to check it out. We'll have a link in the show notes uh, below. Is there anywhere on social media that people can find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Karina Longworth, and then the podcast is at You Must Remember This. Fantastic. And make sure if you're uh, if you're interested in the podcast to become a Patreon subscriber because I know Karina is, uh, you know, always dropping uh, posts up there as well, right? Yeah, there's like bonus content at least once a week on Patreon. Harry, anything to plug? Keep listening to this podcast. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, happy happy birthday to the podcast, right, Harry? I mean, we just turned one. We'll probably Should have some birthday cake. Yeah, it's crazy yeah. to think, but uh, we really Congratulations. appreciate. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful year. It's it's been a real honor to have you on the podcast. I'm a huge fan of. You must remember this. So thank, thank you. you so much for joining us. And uh, yeah, make sure. Uh, for everyone listening to follow us on all the social medias. And if you have any questions or comments or you want us to check out any movies in the future, you can email us at jewsonfilmpod at gmail.com. Have a good one. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>